Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Keith Burkhold. I think I said that right. Uh, Keith is the executive director of Fresno Metro Ministry, and he does a whole lot of other stuff and has an interesting history with Fresno. This is a great uh, podcast, and we have a lot of great conversations about what's going on in the city of Fresno. I know you're going to love it, so let's go meet him. So, Keith, where do you like to eat in Fresno? I like to eat at uh, Zabai D. It's a Lao Thai restaurant. Uh, it's at uh, First and Bullard, and it's just elegant, wonderful food, different than almost any combination. Uh, it's got some heat. It's got just really wonderful textured flavors. It's got uh, every type of vegetable that's in Asian food, and it's got uh, great uh, proteins. Okay, so a couple things. One, I, you know, I know Fresno has some amazing food and it, it kind of, uh, you kind of have to find it. And I've kind of, I've gone down the journey of Indian food in Fresno. Um, that's kind of the first thing that I did when I moved here. Um, and so I'm looking for a new avenue. And, and it, so I guess if you're taking someone for the first time, what are the kinds of things that you order um, at a Lao Thai restaurant? And they have some noodles that are just incredible and you can put shrimp in it or, or chicken and things like that. And it's got uh, just this amazing flavor and you can heat it up or you can cool it down. I mean, it just, they give you a lot of options, you know, but it's just very, very flavorful. Okay. Uh, and and it, it's, it's, it's a Asian food, you know, it's uh it's Thai, but there's the Lao part of that. It's kind of a Lao Thai fusion and it, it just brings some different flavors and different seasonings than just Thai food. Certainly much different than Chinese food. Yeah. Cause I've had, I've had quite a bit of Thai food in my day, but Lao food, that's not something I, I assume that there's like some regional similarities, um, but I'm sure there's distinctives. So what are, so the distinctives are just kind of, the different flavors is it that certain spices they're using or I, I think I think so and that I'm not a connoisseur I am not yeah. uh, uh, you know I kind of know what I like and you your question was where do you like to go out to eat and uh, yeah. sometimes when before COVID I'd stop there and get a couple of plates for my wife and I and we just you know we'd have a great time at home eating some of this food what about to-go food since uh, since COVID is there some to-go places that are kind of in your speed dial you know, it's it's really amazing. I haven't gone out that much for to go. Uh, so I think Zabadi is, is open and some other places are open like that. I haven't, you know, we've been actually cooking more at home. Just kind of, you know, we're old. I'm almost 70 years old. So wife says, you know, we're not going anyplace. I don't even want to go pick it up. What what do you what do you like to cook? Well, I I'm kind of uh, I like I love Mexican food. I think it's the greatest invention of mankind. I think the tortilla is like the most elegant, wonderful thing to put stuff into, and I like that. My wife likes Italian food. She does a lot of stir fries. Uh, you know, she's very health conscious. I'm probably cheating on the extra fat side and extra butter side. So okay, well, since, since you brought it up, so what are what are in pre-COVID times? What are your kind of what are your hierarchy of Mexican restaurants around town? Where do you I love Rosalinda's. I love Rosalinda's. I think it's, it's, they really have great flavors. Um, uh, I think it's one of the more interesting, uh, they have a mole chicken enchilada, which is just Ooh. really, really good. They really get it to, it's not overly sweet, but it's just, just a little bit sweet and you know, that, stuff like that. They've got great uh, rellenos. They've got uh, great uh, uh, tostadas and, they just they just really do a very good job with quality uh, ingredients and it's pretty nice. That one is over on uh, 
Bullard and West. So I guess I like the Bullard corridor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some good things when you're going down there. Um, I, you know, I feel like the the mistake lots of people make with Mexican food is they find their one Mexican food place that they like to go to, and then they don't try other places just because they assume that you know it's it's similar kind of food somewhere else. But I feel like each spot has their own distinctives. Would you agree well, with that? I- I appreciate you saying this because, you know, I love Marianne's, uh, M-A-R-I-A-N-S at um, West, I'm sorry, uh, Shaw and uh, Mark's. That's been a restaurant I've been going to for 25 years, um, home, home owned by Jack, who's a wonderful guy. Uh, I really love, um, uh, I really love Speedy Zapatos, which is that little, you know, kind of hole in the wall place there on Blackstone at the San Jose. Uh, I've always really liked, um, uh, you know, uh, getting a, a, a you know, I'll go to, I'll even go to Chipotle, you know, sometimes and get, you know, uh, especially now that they have uh, a carnitas tacos. So I, I, lo- I, I'll go every place. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's one of those foods that's hard to mess up, I, I would say, but to do it extremely well, I think requires some, uh, some, some, some serious skill. And I, you know, I mean, some of the foods that I, you know, Casa de Tamales and different places, you know, you can really taste the craft in the food. Yes. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a higher maybe floor, but uh, you really know when a place is good. And um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I lived for a time in the Bay area and I, there was a, a place called El Farlito where I would go to get burritos and it was always on the ranking of best burritos in the city. And you, I, you know, I don't feel like it's all the same. I feel like I'm, I'm tasting some serious quality when I'm having a burrito from there. You know, you're just jogging my old memory, Jordan. So I love Don Pepe's and they've got great stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I love, is it uh, La Gigante down there on Kern street, which mm-hmm. is wonderful. Um, I, I mean, I, yeah, I just think Mexican food in Fresno is like, you know, the greatest place. Yeah. They have that uh, taco throwdown, right? I actually haven't been before, but I hear that's one of the places where you go to discover, kind of. You know, I have not gone either. So I just go to these little restaurants, you know, in different parts of town. And I don't, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you could probably spend forever in Fresno just going street by street, grid by grid, and trying all the places and having a, a lifetime of experiences, which is maybe something people need to do more systematically. I don't know. That's an idea for some, someone's Instagram account, but not mine. I totally agree with you. I totally yeah. agree. So, um, Keith. Um, you've been involved in a, a bunch of different things in Fresno. Can you talk a little bit about what the uh, Fresno Met- Metro Ministry is and then kind of lead from there into the work that you're doing for the city now? Sure. Um, so I, I uh, <laughs> been here a long time. Fresno Metro Ministry was established in 1970 and it'll celebrate its 50th anniversary this year. It was founded by churches who were kind of escaping downtown to plant their uh, their new suburban campuses, you know, in North Fresno. And uh, there were just some wonderful people who thought, you know, we got to do something, leave something behind. So Fresno Metro Ministry was sort of an ecumenical uh, uh, structure to try and respond to some of the disparities in Fresno. And uh, boy, you know, it, it's been at it for 50 years, but you know, these disparities have just gotten rampantly uh, high and, and just really difficult to address. Uh, so it's been around a long time. I, I started there about six and a half years ago after being the assistant planning director for the city of Fresno for almost eight years. And um, uh, I came because I've been working on a general plan, this new, uh, 25, 35 general plan that uh, got adopted in 2014 uh, was um, a very widely uh, supported plan, especially in our inner city, South Fresno, Central Fresno neighborhoods. It was really about balancing our development model from just 
like all sprawl and neglect old neighborhoods and old districts to let's balance it and see if we can't get some new things going in central and South Fresno. And I decided that uh, I just didn't want to do a plan that got uh, put on a shelf. And uh, I contacted Metro when they had a job opening in 2013 for an executive director. And I said, you know, early next year, I, I could come over and we could start doing some community economic development. We could do some place-based community development. We could adopt Blackstone as a, a neighborhood. We could do some uh, food system work because Metro's already involved in some other food system work. And uh, they said, let's do it. So I, I finished up my role in the general plan update and then came to Metro in February of uh, 2014 uh, to help help the plan get adopted, which it was in uh, December of 2014. This is under the uh, Swearingen administration. And then figure out where Metro would go. Metro's um, mission statements were about social equity and environmental justice, which I believe in. And uh, we tried to figure out a way to speak to a lot of different people. And so we did a strategic uh, plan while I was still uh, at the city. I volunteered 10 hours a week and we finished a strategic plan. So I sort of had a blueprint for where to take Metro once I got there. And we adopted a new mission statement. Uh, and the new mission statement, vision statement was uh, learning, connecting, and engaging to achieve uh, healthy people and healthy places in Fresno. And uh, then we set out to do a bunch of things. Uh, you want me to take a breath? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's a lot to chew on. I, I want to kind of stop you for a second and just kind of talk about general plans and how those get created. Um, because I know sometimes in, uh, you know, development, um, you know, there are certain stakeholders that are included in those and uh, and sometimes others are not, and that can lead to some of the inequities we see. Um, so how, how, has, um, how has Fresno either improved or gotten better in that, in that uh, procedure, in that process? Well, I really appreciate the way you framed that, uh, Jordan, because this was a plan that really did engage the community. Uh, we counted out that we actually touched about 4,000 people during the community outreach phase of just the alternatives analysis. Uh, and in general plan construction, what you usually do is you do a, an existing conditions analysis, you know, what's going on in the city, what needs to be addressed. Uh, you, you reflect on the older plan that's being updated. Does it adequately address all the existing conditions and issues and problems? And you poll people and survey people and do, uh, you know, uh, uh, stakeholder interviews and things like that to figure that out. And then we were able to construct uh, four alternative scenarios for the city. And we uh, actually used uh, uh, some new software. At that time, it was called Rapid Fire, which is a, a geographic information system-based, uh, what they call scenario planning and impact assessment tool. And so we actually constructed a very extreme, uh, intense infill, higher density, transit corridors, transit-oriented development, uh, affordable housing along primary quarters like Blackstone and Ventura Kings Canyon and Shaw and those kinds of things had a little bit less intense, sort of a very moderate and then pretty much like the way things have been, you just kind of grow out to their horizon sort of alternatives. But then we evaluated them using this tool and the tool was able to assess uh, vehicle miles traveled and greenhouse gas production and water consumption and energy consumption, uh, uh, maintenance requirements and sort of a, a nominal uh, fiscal impacts of the plan. And, an alternative A in this plan really was very efficient and very high performing. And then we went out and talked to people for, you know, three or four or five months. And this is where we touched those 4,000 people and said, here's how the alternatives look. What do you think? What do you like? And they asked questions. We went to high schools and elementary schools. And I think we did about 140 uh, small group meetings, individual meetings and big meetings. It was, it was one of the more extensive 
general plan outreach uh, programs we understood from the governor's office of planning and research that have been done uh, for a town our size. And then we had a big vote in uh, 2012, that was 2012, uh, had 350 or 400 people in the council chambers. 87 people spoke, uh, about 82 of them in favor of the alternatives, and the council voted to instruct us to develop a new general plan based on a, a more infill-oriented, transit-oriented, walkable, bikeable, district-neighborhood-oriented plan. Wow. Well, and I, I, I think um, that will get to a later question we're going to talk about when, you know, thinking about cities, whether, you know, top down or bottom up is a, is a better way to think about change. But I want to go back to Fresno ministry, Metro ministry for a second. Um, you know, I've kind of, since I've lived here and it's, it's not been terribly long, but uh, in the few years that I have, I've kind of heard some narratives about uh, Fresno. And one of them is that there is kind of this white flight. Um, you've got white evangelical Christians or, you know, white, white folks, um, upper middle class moving further and further out um, and leaving kind of this, uh, you know, quote, urban decay or, you know, pulling money out of the, uh, these neighborhoods. Um, but it seems like Fresno Metro Ministry kind of undercuts that narrative a little bit um, because what you're describing is people that are leaving but also wanting to give back is, is it, what's, what's wrong with that narrative? Do you think it's incomplete or do you think um, it's just wrong. Well, well I, I kind of think that's been the narrative of, of um, Fresno probably since the end of World War II. And it isn't just white flight. Initially it was white flight, but now it's higher demographic uh, Latinos and African-Americans and, and Asians and everybody who, who value, you know, that sort of suburban lifestyle. And I'm not, I'm not here to uh, talk against the suburban lifestyle at all. I, I see the merits of that for a lot of people. The problem was uh, and is that um, we didn't balance our growth model. We didn't have the investment in downtown and, and Ashley Swearingen was great at, at elevating that. We hadn't had the development along these decaying corridors where people could actually use transit, like a bus rapid transit coming every 10 minutes to reduce their transportation costs, yeah. uh, to uh, make it easier to get to and from work because now all of a sudden now we've got these very frequent transit systems. So the idea of the general plan and then what Metro has been doing with Better Blackstone is trying to figure out a way to encourage people to actually develop the mixed use and the affordable housing and the new types of businesses that would serve that, that housing and other things along the corridor. And uh, so that's, that's kind of what we talked about Better Blackstone. We, we, we started it in really 2015. We've had a number of uh, community meetings and workshops and events. And then we really got traction with Better Blackstone through a, a, a grant that I co-wrote with the city of Fresno uh, called the uh, Southern Blackstone Smart Mobility Strategy. And okay. we uh, wrote the grant like three times to Caltrans and they finally funded it in 2017. And then we did the work with some consultants and the city in 2018 and 2019. And what it was, Jordan, was the beginning of marrying the idea that the streetscape needs to be redone as a walkable, bikeable streetscape along with transit to support and take some cost out of what developers need to do on the side of, on the, on the land use on the side of the road. So uh, that process has led to a new design uh, that has been approved by the city council in, in May of 2019. Uh, uh, south of, um, south of uh, Shields, uh, Blackstone now is slated to become four lanes from six. It'll go be four lanes all the way down to uh, Freeway 180. And the reason for that is to take the outside lanes and build wide sidewalks and raise cycle tracks. 
so that people can actually bike safely, walk safely, have street trees, and do it as a capital project. What I mean by that is instead of us taxing ourselves to do that, let's compete against LA and San Francisco for state and federal money and build this thing out. Maybe it's part of our, our self-help measure C as well, uh, and, and get that done so that it's not in the cost uh, structure of our developers. Here's the problem, Jordan, and, and just to make it as simple as possible. Our development costs for new housing and new commercial construction along Blackstone or any place in Fresno really are, you know, 85% of what they are in the Bay Area. Our rents are 30 to 40%. So the problem is we got to find some way to uh, create gap financing for our developers to do these great projects. And part of that's taking cost out of their projects. So if we can get a street in, in, in done that they don't have to pay for, and they can just kind of plug and play that new development next to it, maybe we have to still find them some... Uh, uh, subsidy grants from the state or some other tax credits or something to help them do it. We've got to do that. So we understood the street itself, the streetscape was part of the solution to getting people to develop along Blackstone, if that makes yeah. sense. So uh, I, I want to pin down on that. What, what's, where, what's the reason for that disparity between construction costs? I mean, I understand why it's 30% of, of the total, but why, why is it still so expensive to build here relative to building in the Bay Area? The building materials, uh, you know, if you have to use prevailing wage, you know, we don't have our own Fresno rate, so they're higher prevailing wage rates. The materials are just as costly in Fresno as they are in the Bay Area. So you, you just really have these high construction costs. And, and then the reason for the low rent structure is our poverty. We are a poverty city and you can't get the lease rates or the rental rates for some of these uh, buildings when you build them. You can't otherwise. So you got to figure out some way to, frankly, uh, without gentrification and, and, and displacement. And that's the good thing about the quarters, the way that it was designed in the general plan, where we designed it for mixed use and new affordable housing. It's all on previously zoned commercial land that didn't even allow residential. So we should not be displacing anyone along Blackstone from a residential standpoint. And if they do take, say, a, a, a commercial use out and put in residential, we'll hope that we could gather them someplace else, you know, into a food hall or into an aggregated space and, and get them scales of economy. So we're trying to work on the economic development uh, and not having displaced with that, but also getting enough residential in there to kickstart the activity level on the street, if that makes sense, and create yeah. the demand for these other uses. Well, you know, I mean, I, you know, speaking as someone that didn't own a car until I was my 23rd or 24th year and lived in big cities with bikes, you know, having, having, having a protected lane is, you know, is so important. I mean, I, you know, when you're going down some of those three lane roads and people are treating it like a racetrack, it can be very intimidating and you don't want to cycle to work uh, or you don't want to cycle to go to you know, the grocery store or something. Uh, but I want to, I want to pull back a little bit um, on the better Blackstone. So, so why, why think about it uh, bettering Blackstone in that larger sense? Why not think about neighborhoods? Because if I'm thinking about where I want to spend my time working on improving a neighborhood or something, when I think about, uh, you know, Blackstone and knees, um, you know, there, there might be issues that they're having, but maybe, not in the same domain as Blackstone and Shields. So why did you guys choose to think about it in that kind of, you know, cause it, it doesn't, for, those seem like very different neighborhoods, very heterogeneous. Well, no, and I, and I think the idea, and I love your question because it just leads right into the explanation of, of how. So the what is sort of this brand, you know, Blackstone is the spine of Fresno. 
It is this north-south connector between, you know, the, crossing the river, you know, and going south to, you know, uh, Kingsburg. It, 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 is, it is the old Highway 41 that connected uh, Yosemite to the Central Coast. It is, it is all those things. It's the spine of Fresno. So we wanted to acknowledge uh, Blackstone as an entity worth naming, you know, and branding, so to speak. It also is the part of the launch corridor for the bus rapid transit system. That's, you know, Blackstone from downtown up to uh, the turnaround at Fresno and, and Friant, and uh, also then Ventura Kings Canyon. So we decided we just adopt all of Blackstone and we would name it, we'd name what we're trying to do called Better Blackstone. However, however, at, at really discreet and finer grained analysis, we saw the neighborhoods you're starting to talk, you're talking to me about, okay? And we have four activity centers. There was, a, in the general plan, we named one primary activity center downtown, and then a number of subordinate activity centers that would be designated later along the corridors where you would gather activity. So as I walked Blackstone, as I drove Blackstone, and as I looked around and we talked to our friends at the city and everybody else, we realized that for us, there were really four distinct activity centers that we wanted to work in initially. The low-hanging fruit, the things that had a, a, a each having a distinct identity. So we're working uh, on Blackstone between Barstow and Santa Ana, and we call it the Shaw Activity Center. So the axis is Shaw and Blackstone there. And there's like 26 acres of land within 600 feet of the intersection that's vacant. It's owned by one family in Fresno that are, I think, very much starting to look at how they can develop. I think they're excited about better Blackstone and about Fresno's future. They were dormant for many years because of the, you know, the, the threat, basically, of more exogenous development, you know, reducing demand and things like that. So Blackstone and Shaw is one activity center we're looking very closely at. We're also looking at the Shields Activity Center, which is anchored by Manchester Center. Yes. And uh, so we're looking at that. That activity center for us kind of runs from about Dakota down to Clinton. And it has a lot of variability to it, but the axis is Shields. And the primary anchor for that activity center is Manchester Center, which I think we're going to talk about in a little bit. And then we kind of looked at City College, and we have really good friends at City College and the State Center Community College District, which are really stepping up to recognize their location and the impact their investments can have upon uh, the revitalization of Blackstone and Central Fresno. And so after a number of years uh, in their planning uh, to spend money on their new campus, they decided to build a science building at Weldon and Blackstone right on, right on the street and make Weldon their gateway into the campus. And uh, so we have the Weldon Activity Center really for us runs from about Clinton down to Hedges. And we kind of look at a number of different land uses there, but the, the anchor there is the college at Weldon. So we call it the Weldon Activity Center. And then we have the Olive Activity Center, which is the gateway to the Tower District. And we look at that from about Hedges down to 180. So we have four distinct areas, uh, kind of uh, all contiguous, so to speak, from Dakota down to 180, but they each have a different identity. The Olive has a, an identity that's more like Gateway to the Tower and a number, you know, there's craftsman housing districts there just along Abbey. There's all kinds of things that are very interesting. Art Dyson, uh, architect that we've been working with down there, has really identified some great kind of identities. On Weldon, we're working very closely with Darden Architects on our Better Blackstone Design Challenge, and really, He's named it the college district and beginning to think about how that might change and attract people to a college district. And then Manchester is this, this amazing opportunity for transformation and activity. Yeah, so, let's, talk, let's talk about Manchester. Sure. So, you know, when I, when I kind of look at Fresno and I think about its history and I look at the layout, you know, I kind of, you know, in the same way you're looking at Blackstone as kind of this line, you know, I mean, as a new person, I looked at 41 as this line. 
Um, and, you know, I can kind of see, you know, the, the, the almost like uh, when you're a geologist and you're going back to look at uh, stone, you know, underground, and you're trying to understand the different epochs that are associated with it. You can kind of see that, you know, when you go from uh, Manchester to, uh, to Fashion Fair to River Park, and now they're building another one out outside the city. You can kind of see this like history of, of a sprawl and growth. Um, and so I see the efforts to, um, to, to revitalize and bring back Manchester. I mean, I've seen the new, you know, facade on the side and it looks really great. I guess my question is, is like, um, is there enough energy uh, to return it to life or is sprawl more powerful and people are just going to keep being drawn to these new developments further and further out. Well, it, it, it's probably a both and kind of thing. And unfortunately, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say unfortunately, it's just kind of the way it is. I, I believe, you know, talk about Manchester first and, and then maybe talk about that larger uh, question second, if I may. Yeah. Uh, Manchester has great bones. Uh, I, I want you to know uh, I lived at uh, Norwich and, and uh, I, I, lived, I lived around Thomas Elementary School. That's where I grew up. Okay. I was born in downtown Fresno. I grew up around Thomas Elementary. And when I was uh, 11, we'd ride our bike uh, the three miles from my house over to Manchester Center. It was an open-air mall. It was beautiful. You know, you could walk around there. Everything was open. Uh, it, it was just a great place to be. You could ride your bikes on these big, wide sidewalks. And then, you know, in the 70s, after Fashion Fair was built, they decided the only way to compete with Fashion Fair was to close it up. And that's when they closed, make it an, made it an enclosed mall, which was probably the beginning of the end, right, for, for that style. And we have, you know, how many hundreds and thousands of malls, I guess, in the United States. And obviously, they're all under stress now and those kinds of things. Uh, I think we've got uh, probably the best owner we could have for Manchester. It's a private company called OmniNet. And actually, the guy that uh, directed the renaissance at Fashion Fair, Mo Bagunu, uh, he's the one that brought in Fleming's and Cheesecake Factory and really, you know, made fashion fair before this last part of this crisis occurred. One of the highest grossing per square foot malls in the United States and Mace Rich owned it. He, he left after he accomplished that. And when OmniNet bought uh, Manchester about seven years ago, maybe, or eight years ago, they found Mo down in uh, Riverside and brought him back. And Mo's uh, work, he's been working on this thing for a long time. Very, very smart, very professional, experienced guy. And they're struggling, I think, against this tide of change. You know, it's just happening. You know, all of a sudden, it was a great trend. I guess the point I'd make about the potential is that it has enormous potential because of the freeway access, its central location. And then I think with Blackstone, we're talking about a, a possible property-based improvement district that would do more marketing and advertising and, you know, keeping the sidewalks clean and uh, ha having festivals and activities that would promote that somewhere between maybe Dakota and, and about uh, McKinley in that area. Uh, that will help. And I think it's going to be more of a lifestyle center. I think you're going to see probably to, to make it work, there's going to get, be workforce housing built at Manchester. There may, might be senior housing built at Manchester. There might be a whole bunch of things that could change. And we're just hoping to be supportive of uh, the owners and uh, investors to make that really happen. And from my perspective, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm very selfish. I want it to reflect back on Blackstone and create that magnetic you know, kind of feel right there, right? Especially we've got a uh, crosstown trail. You know, the, the Midtown Trail is going to be built bankside along that uh, canal from Blackstone all the way over to Clovis Avenue. And then someday we hope to see it go all the way out to Highway 99. So we could have one of the better multi-purpose bike trails and pedestrian trails in the Central Valley cross Blackstone right at Manchester. 
And so there's all, there's all kinds of things here, you know, it could be very, very interesting that would help that out to answer that question. Then the larger question is, I don't, you know, I don't want to get too, too far out here, but climate change is real. And at some point we can't afford to go out any further. We really have to turn inward to uh, be resilient in the face of a warming climate, in the face of depleting water resources, a number of things. And so we're just gonna have to figure out a different way to live together, to be uh, uh, thriving and resilient and prosperous together. And I don't know that this model since World War II is sustainable much longer. Yeah, so, and, and because the more you develop the further out, how does that, how does that use resources to, to bring it into the climate uh, conversation? Like why, why, why would that accelerate climate change to continue to develop further and further out? Well, you know, it's, it, there, there's a lot of, I uh, mentioned earlier, these scenario planning and uh, impact assessment tools. There's one called, it's kind of like the great, great grandson of the rapid fire we used on the general plan, you know, almost 10 years ago. Uh, and it's called, it's called uh, Urban Footprint. And we're going to use that on Better Blackstone to make some assessments. It is fascinating how much you can reduce water usage, how much you can reduce energy consumption, how much you can reduce household costs as you intensify corridors that have transit and, and attractive, uh, convenient and safe walking and biking opportunities. So I'll just say longer term, the best climate impact we can have in urban development is to intensify our corridors. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of great books about this. I, I've read a couple, I, none of the names come to mind, but about thinking how cities uh, by bringing people in close, you know, uh, ultimately reduce our impact. But I think, I think the, the challenge that I see is that people like their castles, right? Um, and to bring people in closer um, is to reduce the size of their castles. And America has, at, you know, we've had this frontier mentality for such a long time. And it, uh, the urban thing, I, you know, I think there's a movement towards it, but there, we're still fighting this kind of internal tendency to want to, you know, I mean, you hear this when, when you talk to people, even in Fresno, we're talking about, you know, one day I want some land, you know, you kind of hear this kind of conversation that, uh, and it's, uh, it's, I mean, I feel the impulse too, you know, I feel like it's almost bred into my oaky genes that like, you know, there is this desire to want to spread, you know, I think that's reality. And I, and I think it's a tension that we have to creatively solve between the uh, efficiency and the uh, climate stabilizing performance of dense uh, urban environments that really work. And COVID's just thrown a wrench in all this, right? Uh, a huge wrench. I mean, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal two days ago that said New York City's dead. You know, it's just dead. They can't get workers in there. They can't get tourists in there. It's just dead. So lots of national retailers just leaving New York City because they don't see it recovering for a long, long time. And so there are these, um, uh, you know, trends right now after with COVID and maybe post-COVID for a while that are going to be detrimental to that. But longer term, I would use the phrase circle the wagons. The climate is not going to forgive us and it's not going to stop punishing us for overusing water and draining aquifers. And, and it's going to heat up. It's just going to heat up. And the only way really to make it work longer term with energy and water and all these things is to figure out a little bit uh, more intense urban pattern. So it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of, yes, you're exactly right, but we're going to have to make some changes longer term to survive as a society. Yeah. So I'm going to transition to a, a, a lighter topic. Um, so I, I, I spent a large portion of my childhood in another part of the Valley um, something that I don't bring up that often because it comes with a, usually a, a, a look, uh, which is I, you know, spent 
a fair portion of my childhood in Bakersfield, which is kind of a sister a little in some ways to Fresno, although people from Fresno, um, you know, will uh, wince when I say that, uh, when I when I talk about the relationship between the two cities. But ultimately, I grew up in Bakersfield and I had, I had a certain idea of a person that drove a motorcycle. Um, that was in part because of the town, the part of town I lived in. Um, there was, you know, Hell's Angels around and, 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 and people like that. Um, and, but then when I was in college, I, would, I, I randomly, a professor, an English professor assigned Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance to me. Got it right here. Got it right here. And I, the book, the book threw my whole world off because I had a certain idea of someone that rides a motorcycle in my head. And then I was presented this completely different picture. Now, I will say, I will confess that I still haven't ridden a motorcycle in any considerable way. Um, but what, what are people like me missing that don't ride motorcycles? What, how do we look at the world differently than someone who regularly rides a motorcycle? Well, I, I do want to distinguish myself. Uh, there are probably different ethos of, of, of motorcycle riders, right? I, I was a BMW rider until I, I sold my motorcycle a couple of years ago and I put my the proceeds of my motorcycle sale into my grandson's college education fund. I wanted to jumpstart his <laughs> college education fund. And I, and I guess I was also saying, you know, when I did that, I was 67 and now I'm 69, almost 70. And at some point you can't quite handle it. But I, I had two different BMWs from 2005 to uh, 2000 and uh, well, let's see, 17 or whatever. I put about 110,000 miles on the both of them, you know, and all long distance. I had, a, and I, I would just say it was Zen for sure, because you're flying through nature. It is just so incredible to be out in that space and to be gliding through nature, whether it's along the coast of Oregon or it's through the mountains, the Snake River Valley. It's just, to me, it's the most attractive feeling ever to be with that machine with the environment and then hopefully your skills are 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 uh, responsive enough to make sure you keep the wire the tires down as they say that kind of thing uh so i that's what i loved about it and i i chose a bmw because it was a little more expensive to keep it maintained i never had a problem with those machines i went i probably had five uh flat tires on the rear and i, I dropped it i never dropped the bike but i had two on the front i never had a problem with the machine it always ran. It always started. So I loved it. Well, and I, you know, if you're, if you're like me and nervous about motorcycles, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's different ways to ride motorcycles, but I really recommend picking up that book because um, it, 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 I mean, it, it's beyond just like uh, uh, romance of motorcycles. It's, 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 it's also just a way to look at life and way to look at machines yes. and appreciate things that are crafted and appreciate the work that goes into them. There was another book that I read a while back and I, I'm forgetting the title now, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's, it's a, a, a guy that was a, an academic philosopher that decided to open up a custom uh, motorcycle repair shop uh, in the Virginia DC area. And it's, it's him taking his philosophy mind and applying it to thinking about solving complex problems with motorcycles. And I just, I just love that kind of stuff. I mean, it's in part because I, I don't do it as much cause I'm much more of a kind of cerebral person myself and also wanting that. But I think, uh, yeah, there's just something about when you're kind of, you know, you're working on a complex issue with a, a piece of machinery. You know, I, I totally agree. And I don't mean to stretch this out, but I, 
I do want to recommend to anybody listening that if you are going to ride a motorcycle, you want to make sure you take the uh, California Highway Patrol motorcycle training course. I took it at Castle Air Force Base. I think it was three days. And you reminded me when you mentioned this, Jordan, the instructor I had only had a motorcycle. He didn't have a car. He was just, he was a motorcycle nut and he was a mechanic and he was everything. And he was a philosopher and he was a go-getter. Older guy, probably in his sixties. I started this one as in my fifties. And one of the more interesting people I've ever met, he never had a car. He always just had motorcycles all of his life. And that was his mode of getting around the world was motorcycles. Is it, is it as dangerous as they say, or is that kind of just um, that when they're, I mean, it's, it, it's probably true that there's more car accidents on average than motorcycle accidents just because uh, people are more reckless with cars. Um, but it, it feels more dangerous to the, to the non-motorcycle uh, rider. You know, for me, um, it was, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got a problem here. Yep. Uh, so um, it is dangerous. Uh, and I think it, it has some danger in that, um, one, you can kind of just get uh, way out there mentally and you're not really paying attention to the environment. I mean, this guy told me there's really three things going on and you don't want to have any more than three. One is the machine. One is you, the operator. And the third is the environment. Everything that environment can introduce into your life when you're riding that motorcycle down the road, whether it's a, an animal like a deer or something else coming at you or somebody pulling out from a blind spot. Um, I found the best roads to ride on, in my opinion, are two lanes. And they're, they're out there someplace where you can kind of see the best you can what's in front of you. So there is some danger there. I think you're right. Statistically, it probably isn't as dangerous in terms of the number of fatalities. But it, it, it really requires some uh, attention and yeah. concentration. All right. So I wanted to end today with uh, a quote or a line from a book that kind of caught me off guard because I wasn't expecting it. Uh, so on your uh, Fresno Metro Ministry site under your bio, you have a quote from Winnie the Pooh. Uh, that I'm just going to read really quickly, and I want you to tell me uh, what 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 you think it means, and then how it applies to the rest of us. Um, it says, uh, "Piglet noticed that even though he had a very small heart, it could hold a rather large amount of gratitude." So, what does that what does that line mean to you, and what should we take from it? You know, I have some really good friends that are uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh fans, and they kind of resemble this to me. Uh, they have a love for the world and uh, a love for people that just defies the logic of <laughs> their, their individual people, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and I, I always love that saying because it, it seems to me what it says is we have an infinite capacity to embrace each other and have a healthy life and a healthy civilization together. Or we can look at it as something finite. You know, we, we've, we're only a certain size and we can only do so much. And I, I feel like Winnie the Pooh and this line from this guy, uh, uh, Milne, that wrote this stuff was just so remarkably astute that we get to make these choices about how much capacity we have to love and how much compassion we can give and how much empathy we can give. We're not limited by anything. I couldn't agree more. And I think, um, you know, for many of us, especially those of us who have work right now and have um, not had serious complications from this disease, there's, uh, there's a lot of gratitude to be had, although there are a lot of people struggling as well. And that's uh, something I think about every day. I, I agree. And I pray for them and we pray for them. And uh, uh, we feel very fortunate. We're old. We're, we're trying to make it work, my wife and I. And uh, 
Uh, we're really grateful for all the people who have, uh, you know, helped us be safe right now. Uh, and I, I do pray for the frontline people. We pray for the people in our hospitals. I, I can't believe how many people have put their life on the line and a lot of them have died to protect people. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just remarkable. And I, I think that really gets downplayed nationally. Unfortunately, it gets downplayed in a lot of politics. And these are remarkable people who have really stepped up and they're the heroes. They are the heroes. Yeah. I want to finish by just asking you if um, you have some book recommendations either about uh, development and how to think about cities or, you know, more books about motorcycles, which I would be glad to read as, uh, again, a non-motorcycle writer that loves to read about things that I, I fear slightly. You know, I've got so many books going right now. I tell you the book I really want to recommend to everybody. And I think it fits into a lot of the things we've talked about, although the, the theme is food. And it's called Food Fix, and it's by Dr. Mark Hyman. It is one of the best researched books I've read in a long time. And what it really does is he sets up our understanding of how the big food system has actually been so greedy and so profit-oriented that it's not only feeding us stuff that isn't good for us in many respects, and even marketing to the poor parts of our our civilization and our people, uh, stuff that isn't good for people. It's just destroying the soils and destroying the capacity of the earth to produce food. And it's just an amazing book. And I think it really... Uh, talks about the, this regeneration concept, the idea of getting back to doing things that regenerate rather than waste and deplete. And I feel like it's one of the better books I've read. It, 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 he's, and we've listened to it on tape and read the book. I'd really recommend it to everybody to get in touch with the power of food alone to start to help us with our climate change issues, you know, help us with our health issues and chronic disease issues, so many things. I mean, we could, it's a revolution. Food could start a revolution to get back to something that really is about resilience and thriving and being healthy. Yeah, I, I love books like that, that I, you know, that I've heard someone refer to as quake books, you know, the books that shake your world and, and change how you look at everything. And um, I, I, I think I followed Dr. Hyman on Instagram or something. I've, I've read some of his articles, but never read a book. So I'm, that one's going to be on my Amazon list now. I would, I would read it. I think you'd enjoy it. It's just so evidence-based. It's so well-researched. He, he, he looks at every aspect of the international food system. And, right. and, and I'll tell you, the soils, 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 soils. They're either going to save us or they're going to kill us. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, it's good talking to you, Keith. And uh, I appreciate the work you do. And uh, how, uh, how can people find out more about Fresno Metro Ministry and the work you're doing? Just Google Fresno Metro Ministry and you'll see our rotating program information. And we would uh, love to connect with you around our food systems, around Better Blackstone. Uh, we are just really grateful to be able to work in Fresno. I think I would finish by saying Fresno has so much potential. It really, it's such a valuable place. The people here are valuable. If we invest in in Fresno and invest in our people, we will actually create a much better place for everybody. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Keith. Thank you very much, Jordan. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Please look down at the show notes. We've got links to a few different things, um, including the books that we talked about in this podcast, as well as links to our Instagram account, as well as our Patreon page, where you can uh, contribute to this podcast to support our mission of uh, spreading uh, the knowledge from different leaders around Fresno uh, to those of us who wouldn't meet them otherwise. All right. Until next time.